you were making, you know, 400K a year and then you essentially use that to get a mortgage or something in the San Francisco Bay Area, now your total comp isn't that high anymore. And now you still have to make those mortgage payments, right? It's like you were assuming that it was going to be 400K consistently. So it's almost like every other kind of gambling investment thing from like 2021, 2022 crypto, you thought you had a lot. And then hopefully your lifestyle creep didn't like increase to that amount, especially when it comes to bigger things like housing or car payments and, you know, responsibilities and yeah. stuff. I mean, that to me is probably the most scary thing. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors, the podcast where I bring in fascinating people from my world, talk about life, data science, sports analytics, content creation, and much, much more. I'm your host, Ken G. If you haven't already, we'd greatly appreciate it if you gave us a rating and followed the show. It helps us to continue to bring in incredible guests. So Jay, welcome to your second appearance on the Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast. I'm so honored. Yeah, this is, you know, <laughs> you were one of, I think, maybe the like second or third episode that I did. So I'm, I'm glad that we could come full circle like a year and a half, two years later and, and have you back in. Yeah, this is great. We're in... Uh... I remember the first time we also met was in the warmest climate, you know, in the world maybe. And now we're in possibly the coldest climate in the world. So yeah. we've hit both extremes at this point. Exactly. So <laughs> we, we, we actually met first in Hawaii. Jay was out there surfing and hanging out. And then now we're in Utah in the mountains and uh, where it is quite harsh. Maybe not the harshest in the world, but it's that's a little bit uncomfortable. So, yeah. um, Jay, you know, speaking of that. You do live sort of this nomadic lifestyle, and I'm interested in how you're able to do that, what you've learned from doing that, and, you know, what you enjoy most about that or what are maybe some of the drawbacks. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, it started when I basically after COVID, I think in 2021, there was a huge influx of people moving to Hawaii and uh, basically my girlfriend and I jumped on that trend, but that was kind of the original goal as well when I quit my job to start Interview Query and bootstrap a company was the fact that I'd be able to live abroad and like live anywhere and work. And then COVID happened and then everyone became remote. So it didn't become this thing where, you know, I had the benefit of doing it myself. It was just kind of like a larger thing. And then it kind of transcended into, you know, now continuing to move after Hawaii, basically to check out new places and um, after living in SF for five years, it's surprisingly cost efficient to not cost efficient, but it's comparatively, like, it's, yeah, comparatively it's better than, uh, I would say being in SF and then taking vacations. Like it's actually it equals out. So it's actually cheaper than, you know, getting a lease and just going on vacation, you know, one week, uh, every two months or three months or something. So, and then also we have the benefit of being at home at my parents' house in between like different Airbnbs. So that works out well. But yeah, for me, I mean, I set up a camera because I also have a YouTube channel in like a different desk. I just try to get it by like a window and then I do my videos and then I take calls from certain spots and it's been working out pretty well, I guess, just because we don't have that many requirements. Yeah. Well, I, I think something that's really cool is that since the more nomadic lifestyle has become more mainstream, a lot of people are comfortable doing it. And so it's not just you out there. Yeah. You can have a bunch of friends come around. I mean, there's three of us in this house that you said there was nine of, you know, nine people in your house for 
you know, a month, a couple months at a time, yeah. which is a very different way than I expected to at least live my life. I wouldn't say I'm truly nomadic, but I'm taking a month here to, to come to Utah. That's at least dipping my toe in the water. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you have any, any tips for me? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I would say on our side, our kind of goal for this was to, our main priority was kind of snowboarding and skiing. So I would say that it's definitely, it's definitely been interesting to try to curate community. Cause I think at the secondary, a lot of it has been kind of like sharing ideas and like basically having a good time with community people. Cause when we did nomadic stuff with just, you know, Cindy and I, we're just traveling around and we don't actually know anyone else in the places. So this one, I think what you're doing is pretty good because you're already starting out with like three other roommates that are interesting and they're also doing data stuff and you can have collaborations. And so and you also know a lot of people in this area as well. So I think yeah, that's really. already great. <laughs> yeah, like we've already met so many people. So, yeah. I mean, I, I will say that is one of the coolest things about now having maybe a, a reasonable social mm -hmm. presence from creating content is that through LinkedIn, through mostly through LinkedIn, less so through YouTube, I've been able to meet so many people. Yeah. And everyone who I've met is super nice, super welcoming. Like, oh, let's go get dinner. Let's go hang out. Let's do this. Mm -hmm. Let's do that. Uh, it, it's crazy. I could, I feel like I could go to almost any reasonably sized city and be able to grab coffee with someone, be able to, find things to do I mean, you already know you have something in common you're both in a similar industry yeah that that to me is is really fascinating yeah yeah exactly you could just like tweet like i'm in new york city right and then someone will probably be like i'm down to meet up within yeah. like a few minutes exactly yeah and new york city is a rough one because it's like there's so many people yeah like, how do i yeah. see everyone yeah that's true there's that other side of that where you're like i feel obligated to see a lot of people yeah and then if they find out you were there, they're like, oh, why didn't you say hi? But uh, <laughs> um, so I'm interested in your experience starting a startup in the data space and what you've learned, maybe also how the data space has changed since you, you guys entered. Yeah, I mean, when we started and I was just looking at this graph of people working at fang companies essentially in like the last three or four years Ooh. and how much hiring they did during covid and before covid and how much they've kind of laid off now like if you look at the charts it's like microsoft google amazon facebook all four of those companies basically had are they like half or two-thirds their headcount of what they have now even after the layoffs. And so they just went to a huge hiring spree. So there was this huge bull market for all tech jobs, basically, in the past few years. And then recently of late, the only company that basically didn't do layoffs was Apple, right? But they also didn't grow as fast. So they only grew like 25% versus like, you know, 50%, 75% for these other companies. Well, and now Apple's also has their hands tied because now if they do layoffs, they lose all the goodwill that they had, even if it might yeah. make financial sense for them, which is a very interesting social pressure aspect to it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I think like, I don't know if they will do layoffs or not. I mean, that's the hard question, right? But I would say that the companies that haven't done layoffs are the ones that basically didn't try to grow super fast during COVID, which is like, if I talk to some friends, it's like Square, I think is like the other key company that basically is still like slowly hiring because they didn't just try to like zoom up and hire a bunch during COVID. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. 
Uh, I think the data space in general, like the things that we saw from our analysis recently has been the fact that data science uh, is more of an R&D type role or maybe more of like this role where you're not getting defined outputs almost, so to speak, like they're not either maintaining infrastructure, which is data engineering or like being revenue focused, which is kind of data analytics and, you know, creating dashboards for executives. And so we're seeing less of those roles because Maybe they're ha- they have a longer time horizon and everyone's trying to maximize that like short-term cash flow right now. And so they really need to cut uh, the jobs that aren't really, uh, I guess, deemed critical in this point. Or they don't need to hire for those roles. So, uh, I mean, what we saw was December, year over year, data jobs, data science jobs were kind of like cut almost in half while data engineering and data analytics were fine. Uh, I want to see if this trend actually continues. I mean... It's really hard to predict. And, you know, some of that is due to recessionary concerns where people want to hire for like roles that just don't pay as much. And data science commands a higher salary than a data analyst. Uh, Same with machine learning engineers. We're seeing a dip in that because machine learning engineers command an even higher salary than data scientists. Right. And so it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out. Uh, But I mean, AI is not going anywhere. It's like the new hype thing for 2023. So it's not like data science is going to go anywhere either. I just think that there's going to be a reshift of like how people, you know, apply these roles and how they kind of command these titles. And it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I think that the lower portion of hiring for data science jobs was sort of an inevitability. So if we go back five years, there were essentially just data science jobs. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, like, and data analyst jobs as well. There virtually were not any job titles called data engineers at all. There were no machine learning engineers either, to the best of my knowledge. And so the more of these like subcategories that we have, the more that that effectively takes out of that data science pipeline. So I think that there is a hundred percent likely that you know, data companies are not hiring for data science roles because they're more expensive, like you described, and they're kind of shifting that hiring towards data analysts. But I also think it's like a a little bit of a nomenclature thing where it's like we have these new roles. If there are four roles instead of two roles, they're going to be dispersed across that. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think we want more clarity about what each individual role does. Like historically, there's been this massive problem about what is a data scientist. And it still seems to be the case. Like it's pretty well defined what a data engineer does. It's pretty well defined what an ML, like a machine learning engineer does. Data analysts and data scientists are a little bit blurry, but data analysts are less expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's worth being blurry on a less expensive side. I also think you could argue that data analysts are more client facing and, and like their yeah. work is very tangible. Whereas data scientists, sometimes they're doing data analyst work, but a lot of the times it is a little bit less certain. So I think that that's a pretty, pretty fascinating observation based on data that you're seeing. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested in where that pans out in the future. Like what are we going to see in three, four years? I made this hypothesis maybe earlier this year that there will be a second coming of data science machine learning engineers after a lot of data infrastructure is fixed i mean it seems like the last two years are really the two years where companies have been really focusing on data engineering Mm -hmm. which is what they should have been focusing on 
before they were focusing on data science. And I would expect that that leads to better data science outcomes or better machine learning outcomes once they fix their their shit, basically. Yeah. I mean, I think data engineering, yeah, you're right. It was always there. They were just called software engineers. And even now, I feel like a lot of the or data database engineers. administrators. Or, or yeah, database administrators. Yeah, that's true. Which I think is even probably a little bit more different than some core data engineering and data infrastructure work. I think a lot of the people that I know who are data engineers actually just think of themselves as software engineers that just worked on data a lot. And then they got pigeonholed into that specialty and now it's like extremely needed. So it's, it's great, but it's not like they signed up for a job that was only, you know, data engineering. It was always like, here's a software engineering role. Uh, it's opening is on like the data infrastructure team. Uh, but you know, you can jump between teams if you want to, because we know that you're a competent engineer for anything, essentially back end, I'd assume probably not front end at that point. Uh, so yeah, I think it's very interesting to see how that plays out. I, I also think it's interesting to see what kind of, uh, almost interview questions are going to be asked now that this is more of a defined role, mainly because that's like the product that I work on. Uh, because of the fact that if you think about in the previously, it was almost always going to be leak code type questions, algorithm type questions, because they were just essentially software engineers. And now that they maybe expect some more data infrastructure work, uh, you're probably going to see some more kind of like system design questions or questions around like SQL and, you know, creating these pipelines. So I don't think there's actually really like a data engineering question that everyone kind of standardizes around at this point it's just kind of like they go to leak code they ask some questions and then they go you know what projects have you worked on in the past let me validate that you actually know what you're talking about so it might get a little bit more structured i think yeah well so how has the interview process changed since when you started interview query to now that's something or how, how have the questions changed I think it's just become a lot more structured, I would say, especially in terms of the fact that we're seeing a lot of this structure across the different question topics for the data analyst roles, the data science roles, maybe the ML engineering roles. There's more of an expectation now in which everyone understands that, you know, a question about rotating a matrix is maybe not a good signal, right? Or, you know, a specific numpy matrix factorization question is like not a great signal but if we want to ask you know standardized questions around analytics and like um you know how do you investigate that this metric is going down and what the root cause of that that's a little bit more kind of common i would say so i think they've just gotten a lot more standardized uh since and then also with covid if you think about all these online, people didn't have resources to like collaborate as much. And so now a lot of the shift was going online towards like ed tech and uh, people learning more things online. I'd say that that also kind of changed the game in terms of people. I think just seeing that like the information just spread more freely across the internet, across like, okay, what's expected, what's not expected. Right. And, uh, recruiters became a, probably a lot more open with like, you know, what's also expected on the interview going forward. Now, I don't really know how this is going to change now that we're shifting back to like in-person work and kind of this hybrid remote stage. I would say that, you know, before in 2018, when uh, we started interview query or 2019, whenever it was, there was just not as much 
like out there in terms of what data science interviews were like. And now it's become, you know, much more saturated, much more like common knowledge. Now there's a learning path that you can take to go from, you know, a data science beginner all the way to getting a data science offer. And so I would say that it's interesting because it's just become a lot more structured and like the information is out there and everyone kind of knows on both sides, like what's expected. Do you think that that's a better alternative? I think so. I think it's better if you enjoy, like if it's kind of like the standardization of anything, right? Versus being on the frontier of something. If you're on the frontier, then there's not as many rules. But if you're on the, you know, if you're going for something that's already kind of standardized, like at the extreme case, we're thinking about like doctors or teachers or something, right? Where they have like set, you know, things that you have to do to get to the next level or sorry, not, not teachers, maybe like doctors and lawyers, right? Like you got to pass the bar exam. You got to then pass your board. If you're a doctor, you got to get like a really good MCAT score to get this thing. Like that's on the extreme example of standardization for what it takes. Uh, whereas nowadays, um, that's like before in data science, it was kind of like, do you need a PhD? Uh, maybe not like maybe, uh, and then it was like, you know, what actually means, what actually, what does it actually mean to be a data scientist? Like what kind of qualifications you actually need? And like, there was no standardization around mm -hmm. that. It was just kind of like, oh, you have some work experience previously at a prior company that said that you were a data scientist. Okay. Now you can be a data scientist here or like, oh, you did like a PhD in economics. So now you can be a data scientist. You know, there was, there's no frontier in terms of like standardization of like the skills required. Uh, but now you know that you have to do a little bit of A-B testing, a little bit of stats, you know, maybe some probability, really good at like, you know, product metrics questions potentially. Um, and yeah, it's a lot more kind of, you know, under it's, it's out there. The information is out there if you, if you want to be a data scientist. I recently released the course that I wish I had had when I was starting out in the data science domain. It's called the machine learning process from A to Z. And I partnered with 365 data science to build this. I also worked with my good friend, Jeff Lee, who's one of the most impressive data scientists I know to get all of the implementation correct. This course is special for a couple reasons. So first, it focuses on the machine learning process. So you go from ideation to data collection, exploratory data analysis, all of the steps to building and implementing a data science project, it's all taken care of for you. We don't focus as much on the algorithms. This is all about getting a project out the door. Next, we've also open sourced all of our code and all of our examples on GitHub and Kaggle. Those are very easily accessible to everyone, including those people who just maybe want to see those and don't want to pay for the full course. In addition to that, we've included all of the resources that we use to build the course. So you're getting multiple different perspectives on every single concept rather than just our singular voice. Uh, you know, I view this course as one of the most valuable things that, that I put into the world. And I'm excited to hear what you think of it. I've included a discount link in the description for the YouTube video, as well as in the descriptions on all the other podcast platforms. So I'll shift gears just a little bit. I was, I was thinking when you were, you were talking through that and about what we were saying before about the tech layoffs. So we're seeing this from massive tech companies, right? We're seeing it from Google, Amazon. We saw Meta a little while ago, Microsoft. Are we seeing a shrinking in non-major tech companies in data science roles as well? Or is it just like just these big tech companies really laying people off and like more traditional industry is is doing fine on the recruiting? Or do you not have that data? 
Yeah, actually, what we're seeing is the traditional companies are doing fine, actually. And I think that they're still hiring for a lot of roles. It's just that these fang companies get all the glamour and everyone wants these like, you know, huge, you know, salaries. Everyone wants to compare, you know, dick sizes on like their total comp <laughs> for lack of a better word there. Um, I would say that in general, it's the glamour and like the allure of working at these big tech companies that kind of made it really hard for like traditional companies like JP Morgan Chase, like Booz Allen Hamilton, Capital One, Comcast, all these companies to actually hire. But if you look at the jobs right now, those are like the top four companies that are hiring and they're hiring hundreds of data science jobs. And it's pretty crazy because, you know, they've always been just like continuous growth types of companies, right? They would grow maybe like 2%, 5%, 10% year over year, but that wouldn't really attract the kind of, you know, big tech kind of data science, um, you know, candidates essentially. So do you think that all these layoffs might change the perception about working at one of these fan companies or one of these big tech companies, or is it going to be like, I'm smart. I got in. It's never going to be me. That's going to get fired. It's going to, you know, like, or is that still going to be the perception? I still want the prestige. Um, you know, cause like culturally, for example, Netflix, like you go in knowing you're probably going to get fired, right? Like that's, it's upper out culture. Like you work there for two years and you leave. It's very rare for someone to stay there for a long time. Is that just going to be like, oh, that's part of the gig now and I still want it? Or do you think it might be more like, oh, I, like there's a lot more stability in some of these other companies that are not maybe quite as sexy now, but I think keeping your job and having like consistency is a little bit sexy. Maybe I'm just old. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's sexy now for sure. I mean, I think two years ago, it was definitely not sexy to be at, you know, a company that just had cash flow and didn't grow that fast. Right. Because back then the game that was played was to grow as fast as you can and to, you know, raise a lot of money and to like hire a lot of engineers and, you know, kind of uh, sell your product as being this like super cool, um, you know, be working at a tech company that's super cool, get free food, all that stuff. Right. Um, get a lot of money, like kind of try to figure out how much you can negotiate with a recruiter. Uh, I was talking to a recruiter at Amazon the other day and they were saying that at Amazon, they were, people were routinely asking for 50% over the bands for what they had. They'd be like, oh, like, and they'd have to give it as well. They'd be like, oh, I got all these other offers. And so I want, you know, this from Amazon. And they would be like, oh my God, this is like, you know, 60% over what we like actually standardize for your level. And then they'd bring it to the hiring committee and they'd be like, yes, okay, we have to do this. So now that's not happening at all, yeah. right? Well, one, because they're not hiring in general, but also because of the fact that the market has completely changed. And I think that it's not a bad thing to work. I think the prestige is still there for the big tech companies, but it's not a bad thing to just work at and get a data science job or data analyst job at any other you know, company at this point and eventually pivot it into something better in a few years once, you know, the market has kind of shifted. But I do think that, you know, if we're talking about status games here, I mean, big tech is always going to be on top because of the fact that they can just pay more money. Right. And then that's the only kind of measurable thing that you can quantify. No one can really quantify work-life balance or it doesn't sound so sexy to be like, you know, I have four weeks of PTO and I work, you know, seven hours, six to seven hours a day, right? Like that, 
no one's like bragging about that. Um, maybe they are a little bit more now, but like, I don't know. They weren't doing that before. Uh, so. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting. You, I, I've been learning and, and talking to, to a lot of people actually on this trip, mostly Zach Wilson about like tech pay and the way you're compensated and getting options and having like all these different structures for like salary and negotiation. And to me, it's a lot of it's sort of like gambling. Like you're betting on the company, you're, 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 the total compensation is ridiculous, but at the same time, a lot of it is wrapped up in equity that vests over time. And it, it, it is a, a very complex and overly complicated system rather than just being like, here, we'll give you money. You come work for us. It's like, no, we'll give you money now and we'll give you a little more in two years if you do a good thing. And then your bonus will be like 60% <laughs> if you do this. And, and you know, if you can, do, if you do X, Y, Z by this date and time, you can get a little bit more. Do you think that that complexity is like meaningful at all? Or would it be better if it was more simple? I mean, I actually think that the tech company complexity isn't too bad if it's like an IPO company. I think the startup ones are kind of shrouded more in mystery and those ones actually don't work in favor of the candidate because they'll say, you know, we have this many options, you're getting like 10,000 shares. Well, how much money is that really, right? Like you you can't really, you have to do a little bit more mental math or like kind of, you know, public math in terms of trying to figure out exactly, you know, how much you're getting in negotiation. But at least like the tech companies, they'll tell you like, all right, you're gonna make this much uh, this year and then, you know, if you do really well, we'll give you a refresher. But a lot of it, you know, is dependent on the fact that the RSUs for the company have to, like, that's what they're kind of banking on is that they're going to continue to go up, right? And now that they're not continuing to go up, it's a different story for all those compensations, especially the ones that were given last year in the peak of 2022, like very right around January to March, so when, like, right? The market was all the way up. Yeah, exactly. And if you had gotten 100K in shares then, they'd only be worth like 30K now. And yeah, so a lot of people- Almost across the board. Exactly, exactly. Like literally, I think everyone is slowly realizing that, okay, wow, like I thought that this was gonna be 200K, now it's 30. Like, what do I do now? Uh, maybe I should over-index on like, you know, base pay and get like more base salary, right? At another company. But honestly, it's probably just smarter if, uh, especially if you're looking for a new job now to- find just a growth company that's cheap uh honestly any company like facebook even like their stock is so cheap if you get 100k now it's you know basically that person who got 100k back then got 30k so if you got 100k now you're essentially getting it for 3x the price right because it's just so much cheaper and now maybe facebook will go back up uh, but it's definitely interesting you want to go against the curve, right? You want to go against the people, against the grain. You want to be contrarian in this case, right? And you want to buy low. And the best way to buy low is to get a job at a tech company now, I guess, essentially. Yeah, that does take some form of risk appetite, which is also kind of important to think about is that I think a lot of a lot of people who are younger in their career and they want status and these types of things, their risk appetite is high because, you know, if I was making $400,000 a year, and I lost my job. Hopefully, I wasn't spending it all. And there is some cushion, right? Yeah, no, um, definitely. I was actually talking about this yesterday with a friend, which they were saying like, okay, if you were making, you know, 400K a year and then you like essentially use that to get a mortgage or something in the San Francisco Bay Area, 
now your total comp isn't that high anymore. And now you still have to make those mortgage payments, right? It's like you were assuming that it was going to be 400K consistently. Like now maybe you've even been laid off right now. You have to like somehow get that money back. That's not like possible. So it's almost like every other kind of gambling investment thing from like 2021, 2022, crypto, like any one of those things because you thought you had a lot. And then hopefully your lifestyle creep didn't like increase to that amount, um, especially when it comes to bigger things like housing or car payments and, you know, responsibilities and yeah. stuff. I mean, that to me is probably the most scary thing is that when you're reliant on one source of income and it's very high, if you lose your job, I mean, yes, there's severance, but, you know, you're solely dependent on that one thing and you like to be able to recreate that, like think how much more stress that puts on the job search where you're like, Oh my goodness. If, if I don't, if I have this high cost of living and I don't land a job in six months, I'm not gonna be able to afford my house. I'm not gonna be able to do this. Hopefully you'd be able to afford a job and uh, find a job in six months. But yeah, I mean, you never know. It, it's, it's, you know, people don't feel a lot of sympathy for, for the, the tech people that are losing their jobs. Um, but inevitably, like, yes, they were making a lot of money, but your quality of living and, and the, the decisions you make from there, it's an immense amount of pressure, immense amount of stress on them yeah. just because of like that sort of, I, I guess it's almost like, like rug pulling, <laughs> rug pulling yourself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Oh, and that's um, something that we've learned too, is just like managing risk in this day and age, especially because our business is so dependent upon like big tech companies. So it's like, if I had hindsight or something that I've learned over the past year is like, how do you hedge your risk in any one of these scenarios, right? Even if you're uh, working at a tech company too, uh, you do have to think about it because the majority of your equity or your net worth may potentially just be in the stock of this company, right? Until you get that payment. Yeah. Um, and I've talked to friends that now after this whole tech crash are basically saying stuff like, you know, they, uh, essentially once I hit the one year mark of my RSUs, I'm going to sell it all immediately because I still have three more years of this and three more years of my like, you know, a kind of this equity down the line that's basically dependent on this company's stock. And if it goes bad or it falls by 50%, then that's my net worth falling by 50% there. Right. So, well, I, I'm probably a little biased, but I am a huge believer that everyone should have more than one stream of income, you know, especially yes. if you have, <laughs> if you're making good money, you're working at one of these, let's say you're making over even like a hundred thousand dollars a year, assuming you don't have a family, assuming you're in like a growth phase of your life, there's opportunities to invest in real estate. There's opportunities. Maybe the stock market isn't the best idea if you don't have a lot of risk appetite. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe right now it's probably not a bad time to get in the stock. This is not financial advice. Yeah. Not advice, <laughs> you need that but, disclaimer at the beginning yeah, yeah, of this podcast yeah, now. Exactly. <laughs> but, but I think that, you know, finding other ways, whether it's side hustles, whether it's hobbies, I felt so much more freedom after I realized that I could make money doing not just a nine to five job, right? Something clicked when I was like, oh, I got my first AdSense check on YouTube. I got mm. uh, paid for writing a blog article. The ability to make money is a skill. And that to me is something that once you get it and you learn it, you never lose it. And so 
you start seeing opportunities, you start being able to capitalize on them, you develop another skill that's not your main like high value skill. Because who knows, like in theory, I don't think this will happen to be very clear, but in theory, an AI could get sophisticated enough at coding that it that it makes our a lot of engineering somewhat obsolete. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't again do not think this will happen anytime (laughs) soon. But if that happened, what skill would you fall back on? Right. For me, I would fall back on communication, podcasting, networking, connecting people. Those are things that I've indexed on fairly highly. And I know that those things can make me money. But you know, if I was completely reliant on that singular skill set of engineering and data science, I'd have to do all that learning to pivot then. And I don't, you don't want to do that when it's too late. Also, you get massive benefits by two compounding skills. So like my ability to communicate or, or meet people, network, whatever it is, and my data science ability, one plus one equals three in that case, because there are less people who are, who share those same skill sets. Um, so it's kind of like choosing two classes in an RPG rather than just choosing one. Yeah. I would say also you make a good point there about like diversifying that income source because, you know, theoretically, if let's say data science as a whole just plummeted, right? Like no one cares about data science anymore, right? Then it's not only just that our data science skills go out of, you know, don't make us any money anymore. It's the data science content that we generate that also doesn't make us any money more, right? Because the market essentially determines how much, how well we're going to do in general. And so I think that's pretty good. It's like, sure, what you come out of it is that you have these like understanding of how to like make money within a specific market. And you can always apply that to another market, right? Which is, I think, the crucial kind of takeaway there. But a lot of it is very much market dependent, which is, I think, what we're slowly starting to learn, especially with, you know, the rise and the fall of the past two or three years. And it's good to be diverse. It's good to like hedge your risks. It's good to basically take something away from, you know, what you learned, even if you're failing uh, or the market fails, uh, because at least you're taking these skills away as well. And yeah, I think it's just a very, it's a key point. I think in general, and that we were kind of like, there are larger forces at play here, right? Yeah. It, when I was, um, shoot, how old was I? When I was in high school, my senior year of high school, I read, we got to choose a book to read in for one of my English classes. And I chose the like biography of Miyamoto Musashi. Mm. And uh, one of his most famous quotes is that once you find the way or see the way in one thing, you see it in all things. And I think that that concept applies to like finances, right? Once you find a way to make money or once you find a system that works, you can apply that across multiple domains, across a lot of, you know, different things. Um, and there's something really, really powerful in that. Um, I think that might also be like one of Joe Rogan's favorite quotes, but <laughs> I read it first. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So we're, we kind of touched around it. I'm interested in what recommend or like what advice you would have. I'm interested in what advice you would have for someone who lost their job at one of these big tech companies in this job market. Yeah, I think it's hard. I think a lot of this is kind of uh, more almost like life curation advice more than anything else in terms of deciding what you want to do next. Um, this is definitely something I've thought about too, because 
when you're thinking about the next stage in your career, a lot of it kind of um, the choices that you have are uh, definitely held back by some constraints. And I think for me, a lot of the way that I've kind of navigated that in my past career has been basically looking at, you know, what are the options on the table? What are the constraints of each? For example, you know, get another data science job, right? Constraint there is that I'm working, you know, nine to five on weekdays. It's a pretty normal job. I have stability of income. At the same time, maybe not flexibility of what I want to do all the time uh, versus, you know, maybe start a startup, right? Uh, then you have your own constraints there in terms of, you know, how much you know money you have to make uh basically you're not making as much money for sure uh you have to raise money you have to probably work a lot but at the same time you have a lot of control you don't have a boss right uh and then you think about all these options you put them on the table and for me i think it's about like figuring out what your strengths and weaknesses are and then kind of where you can kind of dive in from there but yeah definitely a huge part has been just like understanding the constraints of your choices and really picking the right thing is actually a lot um, kind of underrated, I would say, because it's usually something that you do for the next like f- two to five years, even if you don't think that it's going to be that long. Like if you think like, oh, I'm going to just take this data science job right next, or I'm going to take this data engineering job next, or I'm going to pivot into data analytics. And then uh, maybe if I just don't like it after a year, I can always quit. Right. But at the same time, you're putting in that investment into what is ideally going to be the next five years, right? Like even if you just take a data science job, you're uh, basically pushing yourself to then kind of climb up into being a more and more experienced data scientist at that point. And so you have more, uh, I guess, momentum towards becoming a better data scientist versus maybe doing a startup or like kind of pivoting into uh, like becoming more of a business founder or something like that. So I do think it takes a lot of time to really like apply a framework to understand, you know, what you should do next. And um, yeah, I mean, each one has their own constraints. Yeah, I think obviously it is not good that all these people lost their jobs. It's a terrible situation. Um, But on the other hand, I think that for a lot of these people, especially if they're earlier in their career, this is sort of like possibly a once in a lifetime experience to like reevaluate and make a pivot. Right. A lot of us are looking for excuses to make a career change. We don't like our job or, or something along those lines. And we just never do it because of the golden handcuffs. For those, you know, like 50,000 people, this is an opportunity to do something different or to really self evaluate and think about, okay, what, what direction do I want to go? Was what I was doing worth it? Did I enjoy it? You know, if you got laid off, maybe you didn't really enjoy what you were doing, maybe because your output wasn't necessarily as good. Obviously, some highly qualified people got laid off just because whole departments and stuff were cut. But I think that that is a very, um, you know, even possibly a more positive spin to to put on things is like, okay, that you know, what other time are you going to have to reevaluate like this? I mean, I think that happened to a lot of people. It happened to me during COVID is like the world shut down and I got to sit there and have some time off and be like, okay, well, you know, what do I want to do? How do I want to, you know, how do I want to change myself? I have time right now. I can work on something. I can develop a new skill. I can do the, the world is significantly more your oyster than when you're trapped in a more traditional hamster wheel of like going to work every day. Um, and I, you know, I would say to anyone that is in that position, like, yes, it sucks, but capitalize on it. Don't necessarily just 
you know, it, you can wallow in it for a couple of days. That's totally fair. Again, it does suck, but <laughs> yeah. like this is an opportunity um, as much as it is something that is negative happening in your life. Yeah, I, I definitely think you're right there. I think it allows for more than anything else, actually freedom of space and freedom to kind of think um, because these major life events, while really tough, do contribute towards getting you out of that like existing space that you were in before so i mean i agree i think that if you are on the hamster wheel for a really long time it's really nice to be able to jump off and hopefully don't let that anxiety kind of like come in around you know probably stuff around finances and stuff and kind of what you're gonna do and like not really understanding what the next thing is but i it's like kind of a half glass full versus half empty kind of mindset right you have to think about this as what should i like be doing next like what opportunities are now available to me and what are the different choices that i can kind of narrow down on that i didn't have a chance to before so yeah it's very interesting i i talk to a lot of people and not just on the podcast the podcast is a little different but just in in general life whether it's data scientists whether it's people early in their career and if you ask them where they want to go like what their goals are longer term, there's a, a lot of people are just like, I don't know. I just am doing this right now and it makes good money and I want to do it because it's a, a good career. And I think that there's a level beyond that. Like what direction do you want to take? Um, you know, who do you want to be? What, what, what drives you? What is, what is more, what is more related to, to purpose in your life? And once you start answering those questions, I think your quality of life and your happiness and those types of things go way up. I, it's a weird metaphor, but in, for example, in jujitsu, right? A lot of people go just because they're, it's a good, it's good exercise. It's, um, you know, they're, they're like kind of weekend warriors. They go just, be, <laughs> just because it's, it's like leisure in some sense. Yeah. And whenever I go train, I ask like, are you working on anything? And almost universally like, oh no, I'm just like moving around. I want to, I want to, I just want to practice. Yeah. And those people are not going to improve their skills. Mm-hmm. There's, they might get a little bit better over time, but if they're just going through the motions and, you know, they're just going into work and they're just going into train to, to just do it, the, the, you're not going to make a whole lot of progress. Yeah. If you say, Oh, I'm working on this specifically to get to this point to be able to do this move and you're actually practicing it you're going to learn those things, right? You're going to get there. And then there's, there's something I think so fascinating, especially for me when I was in the workforce, I was the person who was just like, I'm here, I'm just working. It wasn't like, I'm trying to get to this point. Unfortunately for me in my own work, I'm the opposite. I'm like, I want to go exactly here. These are the steps I need to take it. Um, But this is maybe the best possible time to actually evaluate that. And then take the steps in order to get to where you want to be. And if you, you know, if you're focused on your family, focused on other things and work is just like, um, it's just a means to an end. That's totally fine. But identify that and make sure that you're comfortable with that as well. Yeah. I, I do think that there is this, uh, glorification with also, um, entrepreneurship and kind of like doing your own thing. And, uh, I would say that, you know, it's not all great. Also, you know, like I, I think that a lot of the times we get kind of get over index on a lot of that versus being able to just, you know, have a good job 
and then have the flexibility to do other things in life. And I think also figuring out those different kind of proportions that you want to invest time into, like especially jujitsu and hobbies as well, right? Like you're not going to like, I'm sure like Ken, like you're not going to make like, you're not going to grovel to make like 10% more this year if you can't do jujitsu at all, right? Like 100% would not. Yeah, exactly. So it's like finding those thresholds, right? To figure out like, you know, what's worth it for just living. And um, I would say like, yeah, getting laid off sucks, but it definitely helps you reevaluate that, especially if you were working a ton before and, you know, not really understanding like what else you were, you know, you enjoyed out of life and stuff. Yeah. Well, I think those thresholds are very different for everyone. Yeah. You know, yeah, someone definitely. might be like, screw jujitsu. I'm making 10% more. That means a lot. And, yeah. you know, uh, but, but at the same time, I think that there's this, there's this overarching idea that we have to, uh, well, th- sorry, there's this overarching idea that entrepreneurship is, is like a holy grail. Maybe I speak it up a little bit too much, but just like the jujitsu versus finances trade off is different for me. Someone, for someone else, entrepreneurship might be absolutely terrible. Like mm. there's people that like, hey, I want to like I can execute incredibly well. Just tell me what I need to do and I will do it better than anyone else. That's an unbelievably valuable skill set, but it's not an entrepreneurial skill set. Right? Uh, and, I feel like it's pretty good. Like if if you if you get the right ideas, right? Yeah, and but, you can but that's the problem. That. Yeah. Is that, like <laughs> I think the entrepreneurial side is more on the idea and the ability to take risk. Yeah. There's another like like archetype of people who are amazing at execution they want simplicity straightforwardness and um and like security yeah and like there's nothing wrong with wanting that there's nothing wrong with being good at that it's just doesn't coincide with entrepreneurship i'm not saying either path is right there are two different paths and there's you know infinite different paths to be completely fair yeah (laughs) but that is one that is like completely different from entrepreneurship and totally fine for me i like that would be boring to me. But for someone else, entrepreneurship would be completely terrifying because there's so many unknowns. Yeah. Yeah. I would say for most people actually, because of the risk taking and it's, it's definitely a roller coaster ride, I would say. And it's hard to, um, it's hard to also like figure out exactly what to do next when you're an entrepreneur. Right. Because it's not like anyone's, like literally no one's telling you what to do next. So it's like you got that freedom, but then you got also the like the downsides of like having to consistently be right all the time or cons- maybe fail and not, you know, fail too badly and, and take the entire company or whatever you've built down. So I would say that it's it's all hard um, and it you really have to just like try to forecast the future, see what your life path looks like down that route, and then try to see if that's what you want. Yeah, I would say I'll push back a little bit. I think entrepreneurship is a lot more common than we generally think about. So we think about entrepreneurship as like doing a startup, uh, working in tech, whatever it might be. But, like everyone who starts a restaurant is an entrepreneur. Everyone who opens a little store on the corner, a mom and pop shop, like everyone who starts any type of brick and mortar like they're all doing entrepreneurship and um, you know, there's, you know, yeah. you know, probably 30 million 
I mean, I don't actually, I, don't, I have no clue how many restaurants there are. Probably <laughs> <laughs> market size, maybe like 320 million people. This is an interview question. Yeah, how like, many restaurants are there in let, Salt Lake Let's City? say that there's <laughs> one restaurant for every 10 people. Yeah. Th- that's probably way too, completely unrealistic. One for every 100 people. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's so fair. 3 million restaurants <laughs> in the U.S. But, you know, that's 3 million entrepreneurs. Maybe yeah. there's some overlap with people starting <laughs> multiple. But I digress, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the number of people who, who are involved in entrepreneurship is, I think, higher than what a lot of people would consider. Yeah. And yeah. we also don't, don't, you know, there's like a highbrow and lowbrow entrepreneurship where like highbrow is like, oh, start this billion dollar unicorn startup. Yeah. Where like, like some auntie in Hawaii is opening a shop, like selling musubi on on the on the road. Like that's entrepreneurship. In yeah, the that's same true. Way, right? Even at a farmer's market. I mean, <laughs> there's different levels of it, right? And that, that's actually the one tip I'd give to someone who wants to actually dip their feet into is just like take a smaller risk first. Like for me, when I started Interview Query, I was working at Nextdoor at the same time and then just working on it at the side. Like little to no downside if it failed, right? Because then I still have my job. So I would say like, if you can still just kind of like do small jumps into it, right? Like start like selling at a farmer's market before opening a restaurant. I think that's the general kind of state of progress there because you want to test to see if your food's actually good. Uh, then that's generally how like, I think most people kind of get started as well. Yeah, I think so. I think so too. I think that there's this like, like glamorization of entrepreneurs that like, you know, it's like the it's like the rapper that gets a face tattoo in high school because they're like, <laughs> I don't want a job. I just want to you know, like make music and this is going to force me to do it. I think there's like something similar in entrepreneurship where it's like, screw my job. I'm going to go all in and focus on this 100 percent. And that can work. But I also think that from a data perspective, it's a lot more scientific to see if like to A-B test and, and see and, and like oh, yeah. iterate and grow because I mean, I would burn out real fast if if uh, I was putting all this effort in with virtually no return to begin with. Yeah. And your appetite for risk grows as you get more successful, I would say, too, right? Because initially, you probably aren't... Uh, I don't think anyone has, like, that huge amount of risk in them all to go from, like, stable jobs to just starting a business uh, and quitting their job and doing it full-time. Like it takes incremental levels of jumps, uh, unless you always wanted to do that. Of, of course, then you know you kind of know what you want to do then. But like, I think it's kind of an incremental thing. You kind of like you're testing out. You're like, oh, like you know, I made a little bit of money. This is awesome, and like you know, it's kind of supplementing my regular income. And I kind of like the flexibility of you know being able to control how this goes. And then you get like a little bit more of a taste, and then eventually you know maybe it sucks you in entirely, or maybe you just kind of want to like leave it at that and just have this side hustle that kind of just, you know, runs that you can do on the side. That's kind of your passion and you don't hate it because it's only just a side hustle, yeah. right? Before it consumes you yeah. and like kind of takes over your life maybe. So well, I mean, that's been interesting for me with YouTube and content, right? Like it still kind of is a side hustle. I mean, I f- frankly, financially I do fairly well, yeah, but I still get it. I still enjoy it a hundred percent. Like I'm not going to make a podcast. I'm not going to make a video if I'm not, having fun like that that would be the death of me but on the other side i remember how cool it was to make my like first dollar yeah then to like be like oh like with content i can cover my rent yeah (laughs) like i wonder what would happen if i could cover my whole cost of living with content and then everything that i made 
outside of that in my actual job, I could just keep like that was like, oh, my goodness, like what, what the heck? And then it's like, oh, like I can cover my cost of living with this. And I got some over the top. Like my cost of living has not changed. I have like no desire to have a fancy car or anything. Or maybe yeah. just travel, but work covers a lot of my travel. So it's yeah. like, oh, like I get to keep a lot of this money. And then I inevitably I just keep investing it back into like new camera equipment or things that make the content better. And it's, yeah. it's there, there's like, it, it's cool to think that I don't have to like, like take anything out. Right. I can, you can just put it all in when you don't have to rely on the financial side of it to just make the content and everything better, which to me is, is, is really cool. Yeah. We've talked about content businesses before, and I think they're very interesting, especially when we think about using them as leverage, right? Like, especially like repurposing content and like, um, you know, kind of taking that existing content and uh, figuring out uh, different ways to kind of like monetize it. And I would say that the, you know, it's, it's definitely high leverage. It's really, really uh, easy to kind of get started in, but hard to make good. And like, uh, I think that's also something that I struggled with initially with seeing all these YouTubers is just be like, wow, like these guys are so good. And you can't really see how much effort they put in to be like really good at it at this time. And especially, you know, I mean, you've filmed like over a hundred podcasts, right? At this point, like 200, yeah, 100 and this would be like 134. Yeah, exactly. So like to get to that level, uh, you'd you think have... I'd be better at podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. No, I mean, the, I mean, look at Joe Rogan, right? Like he has like 2000 now. So it's like this yeah. guy's pinnacle of podcasting. So, but it's like, then you have to do 2000 podcasts to get there. And then most people aren't willing to put in that effort to, to get to that 2000 level mark. So yeah, there's a couple youtubers or content creators that basically say like all your videos are garbage until your hundredth video <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's pretty yeah. true actually yeah. uh, right around i remember my hundredth video came out when i had around ten thousand subscribers oh really and then essentially right after that it like two months later i had a hundred thousand wow so it was one of these things where it was like you know maybe the algorithm includes that as well there's yeah. like a corpus of my work or whatever it might be but also, you know, the quality of my work was steadily improving. I think now, hopefully my video production quality and stuff is better. I'm trying to have more themes in the videos. I'm trying to take more of a nuanced approach to actually video creation. But I don't feel like I was improving like I was when I was first starting. Because every video, I had this goal of doing something a little bit better. Yeah, I, I was like, oh, I'm going to try a different camera angle. I'm gonna, I used to have this problem where I would like reach for the camera to stop it right when I finished talking. Mm. So the videos would end with me like that, but like, <laughs> like I would do it while I was finishing what I was saying, but yeah. finally got out of that habit. And there, yeah, there, there's like a lot of little things where I was like, okay, like that was the improvement. I made that video. Great. Yeah. And I would keep track of them. And now it's just like, I, I guess that my content is also transformed where it's a little bit, bit different as well. So there's less obvious things, but. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think on my side for content, it's a lot about ideas and like how to generate better and better ideas. Because when it comes to ultimately kind of like 
building that content, a lot of it is about just kind of framing your ideas in a way that I think makes sense, especially when you're writing and doing the mediums across writing versus kind of YouTube where you have a little bit more creativity in terms of like how you present those ideas and like how you might repurpose them from existing ideas and stuff. But when it comes to, yeah, writing and generating better ideas, I think that's where I'm like, okay, I get it. I got to write like a thousand articles or something to get really good at this whole generation of ideas thing because if i can't do it right now eventually after i keep on practicing and getting better at it i'll eventually be able to do it much better down the line i would assume and hopefully you know ai will help out with some of that too maybe but who knows yeah i was (laughs) like maybe i'm not great at asking chat gpt questions yet but when I ask for video ideas and things like that, I'm just sorely disappointed. It's super, super basic. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just scraping from online or it's using all that, you know, former data. And it's like not good. It's actually, I heard that the best way you should do it is that you should ask ChatGPT for ideas and then just don't write any of those ideas and just use that as an elimination list so that you <laughs> write something idea. completely different because they're just giving you what, you know, is already common. So then now you can think of new ideas once you've figured out what's already common, right? Mm-hmm. So interesting. Or you just look at the really common ones and see what hasn't been made a whole lot. Yeah. That, yeah, exactly. that was something like I made a video, is data science a good career? Like no one's ever made that video before. It's like super obvious. Really? Yeah. Huh. So someone actually, one of my uh, subscribers recommended that to me. It was, they analyzed my YouTube data on Kaggle. And that was one of the things they're like, you should make a video on this very basic topic that you have not made a video on and no one else has before. And I was like, all right. I, I wish I remember the person's name. Oh, wow. Um, How did they get Kaggle. that from like your past YouTube data? Oh, uh, they just looked at all the video titles and stuff like that. Maybe, Maybe it was like, like their recommendation, but it was, it was oh, okay. pr- pretty good. Yeah. Huh. Uh, Jay, those are all the questions I had. Are there uh, any things that you're working on? Anything you want to share? Any way people can get in touch with you? Yeah, I mean, if you want to follow me, uh, I have two main platforms that I'm kind of producing content on. Or sorry, three actually. Uh, YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, and then I'm also doing a Substack that's not really data science focused, but more kind of like it's just about surfing and snowboarding. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had more content about surfing and snowboarding actually, but it is a lot about more like business AI stuff, um, anything that comes to the top of my head, probably like personal finances. Uh, but yeah, please follow me there. And uh, if you're interviewing, check out Interview Query. Um, and yeah, that's it. Amazing. I will link everything in the description. I also think I have a discount code for interview query. You do, yes. Uh, yeah. Which will also be in the description. Yes. So uh, be sure to check that out. And Jay, thank you so much. This was amazing. Yeah. Thanks, Ken. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors. Many of you have been asking about how you can support the show, and we're extremely grateful for all the engagement so far. The best way that you can show your support is to subscribe to both the Ken's Nearest Neighbors and the Ken's Nearest Neighbors Clips YouTube channels. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Music, giving us a rating and sharing any of the episodes with someone that you believe might find the content useful is also greatly appreciated. The Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast is hosted by me, Ken G, produced by Bobby Hicks, and is edited by Mario Paul and Tony Pellerini.